With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Eric Kent. And I'm Matt Blonde. This is WGON Radio. Tonight, an exclusive interview with composer, musician, actor, Donald Rubenstein. Later, a special report on the state of Romero filming locations. But first, the news. All right, my name is Eric, and I've got with me Matt Blasey. How you doing, Matt? Pretty good, buddy. How about yourself? Good. This is our uh, first episode of WGON Radio, uh, all Romero, all the time. And uh, just before, I guess uh, before we get into the news, let's uh, let's just talk a little bit about ourselves briefly. And uh, Matt, why don't you start off and just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into George A. Romero. Well, I got into George A. Romero's films over 30 years ago when I was a, just a little kid watching uh, Dawn of the Dead on VHS, and it was pretty much Dawn of the Dead until the 90s. I had seen Day of the Dead at one point, and I only remembered one scene of Captain Rhodes getting torn apart, and I hadn't, I didn't see the movie for such a long time after that, and was a fan of the the remake of Night of the Living Dead and the original Night of the Living Dead, but probably until the age of about 15 or 16, Dawn was really my only Romero calling. And then when the Internet got big, I I discovered more George Romero and just kind of went down that rabbit hole and finally met him in, in 2000, which was like the highlight of my life at that point. Uh, being 19, you know, you, you shoot for the stars. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, created a, a WGON-themed Dawn of the Dead website, which was just my adventures of going to conventions and meeting the actors and going to the Monroeville Mall since I only live about three and a half hours from it. So it was pretty much just my my attempt to have a little piece of the Internet corner with my experiences. And life progressed, met more and more of the actors and met Greg Nicotero in 2003 and, and sparked a friendship with him. And over the next year and a half, uh, stayed in contact with him and, and another another gentleman, we both know Lee Carr, uh, we ended up on the set of Land of the Dead for one night in 2004 and, and got to live our, our dream of being a George Romero zombie and got to do that and experience everything. And, uh, set locations, set visits, uh, and then in 2008, I got to go back up to Canada and be a, a zombie again in Survival of the Dead for three nights on what would be George's last film. And wow. it, it, yeah, I know. And it's, you know, over the last, you know, what would be nine years until his passing, I'd see George on almost an annual basis and catch up with him and talk and swap stories and, and continue to visit friends and locations and sharing those experiences, you know, throughout the ages and trying to 
do what I can to, to bring others into the fold and, and, and share what makes it special for me. And, uh, with, with George's passing this past summer, it, it's really weird being in a post Romero world and being a fan because you have to now remember, you know, George as he was and not look forward mm-hmm. to the next time you're going to see him. So it, it's still an adjustment, you know, almost four, four months later, but, you know, we'll 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 figure out a new norm what it's like to be a fan and and not have George around to celebrate this kind of stuff with. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned his passing, and that's actually it inspiration for this show. Is really just I I have another podcast that I run with a, a good friend of mine, Jay Scott, who's also a Romero freak, and um, you know that that podcast is more you know it, we covered a lot of Romero films we i mean we we did you know probably three dozen episodes about romero or something romero related and kind of you know there was not really an excuse to talk about about george as much anymore with the podcast and uh with his passing i've just found myself really wanting to talk about him and uh just the idea of something that was just all romero all the time just I don't. It just kind of sprang up out of that idea, um, and I have a. I started off more uh, as a slasher, just general horror fan. Coming up as a kid, eventually ran into the Friday the Thirteenth films. Checked out Tom Savini's Scream Greats, and Savini was no doubt my gateway to the Romero world. From there, shortly after, um, got into Dawn of the Dead and. Um, had been a fan of Night of the Living Dead, but hadn't made the connection that uh, Romero and all the people, you know, were the same people that had made Dawn. Eventually came around to that connection in the late 80s. And, uh, yeah, just kind of went from there. And actually, you mentioned your website. And I, I remember probably some somewhere around 2000 seeing your website and uh, seeing that you had actually met George A. Romero. And I was like, man, this guy's making dreams come true. <laughs> And actually, uh, I don't, I don't think without seeing that picture of you, um, encountering him, I think it was some kind of speaking event at a college or something like that. Yep. And, uh, and I just remember just, you know, well, gee whiz, it's possible to meet. It kind of opened that door for me. And, uh, it was 03 when the uh, 25th, uh, anniversary of Dawn rolled around and they had the Pittsburgh Comic Con and it was actually through your website that my friend Jay Scott won the two tickets and, uh, we ended up getting, you know, free autographed posters and, you know, jump flash forward years later, you're, you're mailing me pieces of the elevator of <laughs> <laughs> the, the flyboy. So I'm living a kind of vicariously through Blasey here. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> well, but, and that's, uh, I, I think that was what ended up being the purpose of the website and everything that I did. It was to share my experiences and to show people that you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, because there were so much, so many times people say, "Oh, I would just love to go and do this," and I'm like, "Just go do it." There, there's mm-hmm. no time like the present, and I have a friend of mine who's from Pittsburgh, who now lives in New York City. And I I got to meet him at the Land of the Dead premiere in 05 in Pittsburgh. And he just every year would be like, I need to go with you to a show. I want you to introduce me to George. And he he passed up on almost every opportunity, unfortunately, and never got to meet George. Oh, and wow. every time we talk, he kind of brings that up. And I was like, buddy, 
you should have done it. You had at least a dozen chances to meet him. You know, mm-hmm. you can't you can't just sit at home and, and look at the photos. You got to get out and do it. Well, I'll admit, I I kind of rested on my laurels a little bit as well. I mean, I I met him in '03, '03 uh, and in '04, and then you know just because I I really I'm being where I am in the deep southeast, I I'm pretty far away from a lot of these events. It's it's a uh, you know, I think it's like a fourteen and a half hour drive to Pittsburgh from here, and uh, so it's not. I have to be selective about it. So yeah, I mean, I hadn't been getting out as often as I should have, and I mean, I even regret, you know, not seeing them one more time. Um, yeah, this this upcoming weekend will be a year since the last time I saw them, wow. and that as weird as that's going to sound, that's going to be a hard time because that was the the premiere of the 4k restoration at night and that was at moma in new york and i was i was standing there and and talking with Lori cardell and a couple other people and and george and his wife came over to me and gave me a hug and we chit-chatted and his wife had asked if my son was there and i said yeah he's down there and Zeus grabbed george and walked him down the aisle right over my son and like gave him this like big hug and my son, who was eight at the time, to me, that was like the moment it, it really stopped being about me and, and really seeing it experienced through his eyes. Mm-hmm. So with, with that being one of my last memories of George, I'm, I'm glad I have that because that's what, what made me want to keep doing it was to keep seeing people meet George for the first time or, or finally get to say something to him or see something with George there that really encapsulates my experience with him. Well, you mentioned the 4K uh, Museum of Modern Art Restoration uh, that's now circulating in select theaters, and I hear it's rumored to have a Criterion Blu-ray coming up. I don't know how official that is. Um, but you, you've seen it. What, uh, what can you report back? It's visually the best I think you'll ever see this film, you know, with, with 4K being the the new standard that movies are going to for restoration, it's really bringing to life, you know, lots of film. And as beautiful as the movie sound, it sounded good. I was hearing stuff in that movie that I had never heard before, and I don't know how much audio remixing and, and fixing they did, but there was something about seeing it, but then also hearing it. And I don't know if that was just my audiovisual sensories working together with, with the movie, but I took away more from the audio from that than I did the actual visuals of the film. Wow. That's exciting news as well. That's, uh, I'm an audio, bit of an audio junkie, so that's yeah. great. And I had just read, and I don't I think it was an article that someone had posted about George talking about making night. This was a, a very old interview that I think just surfaced, and he was talking about how There's all a variety, uh, variety yeah. from 1972. I've seen that pop up, yeah. Yeah, and he had said, George had said all the audio was, was on set. Like, they didn't do any Foley. And I'm just wondering, wow, how you know, buried were some of these sounds in, in, in the film that they finally got to bring to life that no one's ever heard before. Little creaks and 
just just these little details I, I picked up on a film I've seen hundreds of times, mm-hmm. and it, that that to me was what I enjoyed most of that restoration. And if you get a chance to see it, go do it. Yeah, I'm trying the closest to me is again I'm in the armpit of the United States. The closest to me is Atlanta, which is five hours away. I just don't know if I'm going to do the ten hour round. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I'd love to see it. I'm hoping to get a chance. Um, it, do you, you know, if there's any legitimacy to this Criterion business? I, I keep hearing Criterion throw around more loosely than I have in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and I, I want to say yes, but you know, I'm just going on a lot of. I don't want to say hearsay, but a lot of people are talking about it. And I don't know if Janus Films, which is the distributor, they, I think they own Criterion. Oh, really? Or they, okay. I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, somehow I think they're connected. And this very much could be me putting multiple conversations together. Mm-hmm. But it, and it might not be. Janus might be a separate company. So, you know, any listeners out there, please. By the time this airs, if I'm wrong, please correct me. I don't want to. I don't want to be the source of a wrong rumor. Yeah. No, but uh, yeah, and I can't exactly, you know, pinpoint where I've heard the Criterion stuff, but I've seen it a few times now. Okay, I just read they uh, have a close relationship with the Criterion collection. Okay. So I'm, I wonder. If, I, I wonder if Janus secures films for them. Mm-hmm. And Criterion yeah. does the physical release, so that that could be that relationship that I keep putting two and two together with. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to. It's about time. I mean, we've you know we've been doing Blu-ray for about a decade, roughly now. It's about time we get an official night Blu-ray on the market, at least well, on the state side. Yeah, that that whole film with with its copyright status and and everything. It it it's so muddy. With with everything, you know, this is considered the first official Night of the Living Dead release, mm-hmm. you know, proper of the film, and I don't know the yeah. legalities or or the logistics on how they created this copyright, and and there's a lot of other night historians that are so better versed than me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jim Cirinella is you know the go-to guy for this stuff, and and he can speak a lot better at that than I can. I just I just go on what I read and I just know that this is, you know, the film that should have been released forty nine years ago. Let's put it that way. Right. Great. I can't wait to see it. It sounds amazing. Did you happen to catch the late or the Pittsburgh episode of uh Anthony Bourdain's show? Oh. No, I have not. Did you see it? Yeah, I DVR'd it. It's actually worthwhile because he does a uh, he does a two segment profile on Braddock and actually has a segment with uh, featuring Tony Bubin. So it's uh, definitely worth checking out. It's probably online or on demand or something like that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll come across it at some point. I'm sure of it because I do want to see it. I especially want to see it because of Tony because I, I I like the stuff that Tony does and he's a hell of a nice guy and. I think that was more the reason I wanted to watch it rather than him just being in Pittsburgh. Definitely. It was the, the, the booba was, yeah, 
made me watch it that night. But uh, yeah, probably just sort of watched it, watched it eventually if it were only Pittsburgh. But um, yeah, I definitely recommend it. See if you can track it down and maybe talk about it next time. Um, speaking of Tony Buba, he I don't know if you've checked out his website recently, but he has actually put his a lot of his films on DVD and is selling them personally uh, from his website. They're a little bit pricey, but they've uh, otherwise never been available except for public screening with, I believe, you know, like a screening that he would travel with. Um, so I don't know. I, I think you can you can get several of them in a pack for around a hundred bucks. I've, I've been thinking about checking it out because I don't know how you'd see it otherwise. Maybe somebody wants to go have these with me out there, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was a great, yeah, good episode of Bourdain. I don't, um, it's not a show I normally watch, but it's definitely entertaining. Check out the Berg. I'm excited about the uh, upcoming uh, box set, the Romero box set, Between Night and Dawn, coming from Arrow. Should have been out by now, but they delayed it for like three weeks. Yeah, they did, and uh, and uh, I just got a notification. I think it's supposed to ship on November fourteenth. But are, have you have you pre-ordered that, or are you holding off? No, I pre-ordered it. Uh, I'm I, I love the crazies, um, but I was really the one film that I wanted to see most of that is Season of the Witch. Mm-hmm. Uh, of those three, it's probably the film I will watch the most. I just rewatched There's Always Vanilla, and it's it's not a bad film, but to me, it's like the 70s just threw up on a George Romero film, which is kind of how I describe it to people. It is like the most 70s movie George could have made. Uh, and I know I know a lot of our our friends and colleagues hold that film in, in kind of a high regard, and and, and rightfully so. I mean, it, it's not it, it's not terrible, but it's it's definitely you know his most lost film because mm-hmm. it's, it's the one film of his that really sticks out in, in terms of relating to his other work, right? Being yeah, as it is a pure non horror film. Yeah, definitely. No thrill, no real uh, thriller elements to speak of, and I'm. I definitely. I mean, I don't. I don't think I hold it any higher than I should. Should you know? But I do enjoy the film quite a bit. Just to really, I I, I enjoy seeing Ray Lane, who is in both Vanilla and Season, mm-hmm. and um, and just really just seeing. Um, a color picture from George from that early, and then that features a lot of Pittsburgh from that time. Oh yeah, uh, it's a, it's a huge to me. It's almost like a love letter to the city because the city almost mm-hmm. plays as a character. Yeah, and just everybody's just trying to be too cool for school in that film, <laughs> and and we've never, like you said, we've never had a decent version. Uh, everything's been pissed for. So I've, I've seen a few screen caps, and yeah, I'm psyched. And I, I'm, I'm really psyched for uh, season two. I, I think season out of this box set will probably uh, see the most improved stature as a film because it's you're finally going to just be able to see it for what it is and not for how horrible it looks. And also, they've 
they've righted that travesty of the uh, the um, 1.85 to 1 presentation from Anchor Bay where they just zoomed on the uh, frame. Uh, yeah. So it's it's well if you remember you recall the the credits they showed the full frame with the blurry sides like they do on ESPN <laughs> Classic. <laughs> oh yeah yeah. <laughs> but uh but yeah the the films they look like they've done an amazing transfer. Yeah but they somehow found the original materials. I'm, I'm psyched for it. Plus, there's a bunch of extras. I, and I, I do like the crazies, but I was I was pretty good with that Blu-ray that's already out. I think uh, Blue Underground, I think, did that one. Yeah, you're right. It's Blue I, Underground. And that's funny. I never upgraded from the DVD to the Blu-ray. The DVD was pretty solid, I, Blue Underground. And I don't know if they were shot on 35 or 16. I, I don't always get into the technical parts of it, but, I mean, they y- you can only make a film shot on not the best stock look so good. Mm-hmm. And, and I you know, I felt the DVD was fine, but you could tell it was just, you know, ported from something. It, they didn't go back to the negative for the DVD for any of those those three films when they were first put out on DVD, but I... I oh, goodness, I think, I think season and... Um and vanilla were tape transfers. Oh, and that doesn't surprise me. I'm yeah. sure someone had a tape sitting around and they just digitized it, and then yeah. that was it. Yeah. I, I'm most excited to see how the crazies look, because I feel the crazies, you know, given the right treatment, will look spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, to me, and I'm not so much of an audio or video file, I, I enjoy the graininess of some of these movies just because... That's how we watched it, you yeah. know, growing up. You know, you had an old VHS copy or you, you went and rented it. And there's just something about the unremastered editions. It just takes you back to looking at all the cracks and the pops and the tracking marks and everything of watching it, you know, on a Friday night in the living room with the lights out. No, I hear you. I'd like to have a few of those versions around myself. Um Back in the early 2000s, me and Jay Scott were back into we were really into archiving. Like we we put on disc all the old VHS versions of Dawn and threw like threw all the commentary tracks on it. And stuff. <laughs> I, I always say that every time they remaster something in 4K or above, they should always put an unremastered VHS port on the on the disc as well. <laughs> With just 2.0 mono audio or stereo, whatever was released on home video, just for nostalgia purposes, it can't take up at what 50 megabytes of disk space. <laughs> Did you ever have a chance to uh, check out that um, unmatted Argento version from that Italian box set? Yeah, I actually ended up ordering that. And that's that's pretty wild stuff, isn't it? So weird to watch the movie like that. It's like mm-hmm. it's like looking at just like how Gornick shot the movie. What possessed them to do that? But thank you. Yeah. That's like <laughs> releasing like an uncolor corrected superhero movie. <laughs> you know, it's like for the really hardcore you know cinema fans out here. Here's an uncorrected Avengers movie, and and you're looking at you know everything. It's flat and dull and and everything and you know they give us dawn of the dead from italy with the unmatted argento cut like if you could have the most obscure release of dawn of the dead that would be it Mm -hmm. oh yeah 
thankful to have it too, worth every penny. That was, uh, if not only just for the screen capture value and capturing, uh, <laughs> capturing like boom operators just yeah. standing in plain view. <laughs> well, I accidentally bought the, the edition without that in it. Um, in, in my excitement to order it, I ordered the wrong version. And then when oh, I got that's... it, I was like, shit. So I actually went back and ordered the correct version. So I had both sets sitting on my shelf. And But it's worth it. I'm a fan. I like seeing them. That's hardcore. You should take uh, both of them, make them like uh, bookends. <laughs> <laughs> bookends to all my Dawn of the Dead DVDs and Blu-rays. Yeah. I think I just saw somewhere over in England doing a Halloween Dawn of the Dead double bill. Oh, man. That'd be amazing. Did they do that just over Halloween just now? Or? I think it's coming up. I think someone had posted about it, and I thought I was like, yeah, it's here. And then I looked, and I saw the, the .ko.uk, and I was like, damn, that would be an awesome four hours in the theater. Mm-hmm. Two of the greatest films from, you know, 1978, you know, ever to come out you know, without having to leave your seat in the theater, I think that would be wonderful. Have you ever gotten a chance to see Dawn of the Dead in the theater? I have not seen it in the theater, but I watched the 16-millimeter film print at the Pittsburgh Comic-Con that Greg Nicotero had brought. Yeah, I was there, man. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, I sat there and watched it. That was actually pretty cool. I've, and I've, I've actually, uh, over the years, tried to hunt down a 16-millimeter print and uh in my in my huntings i found two you know just two people was uh when when for some reason i thought it, that the print had belonged to uh, lenny lenny lees mm-hmm. and uh and then in contacting him he was like no that was nicotero so yeah the two people became one <laughs> and then yeah, they, I, it's a tough print to track down there was one on eBay a couple of years ago. I would say maybe just two. And it it might have been from. It was sixteen. It was it was going pink. Uh, oh yeah. I'm trying to I think, think if it was. One. I think it was from Australia or something, and it mm-hmm. was only like five or six hundred bucks, and I was so surprised at the the price. But then I considered, you know, the the condition of the the print with it going pink wasn't the best. Yeah, I mean it's but, really practically worthless almost yeah but to a dawn fan like you or me that would be just to have an actual print of it would be worth it for me even if i could never show it just to just to have it on the off chance someone's like i got a 16 millimeter projector i'm like let's fire it up right i totally agree my dream is just showing up like at a public library auction somewhere and they're just you know 10 bucks Cinema god. five version of Donald. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm like here's twenty, keep the change. Alright, well let's let's hop into our uh our to- special topic of the night is uh Romero locations in danger and actually what uh spurred this on was I think somebody recently posted that the airport from Dawn of the Dead is for sale. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned that it had been, I guess it's been for sale for a while? It's been for sale, I want to say, for two or three years. And on on one trip out there, I had been lucky enough to to see someone that, I don't know if he's a, he, he's not a groundskeeper, but he's someone that works for the airport that was out walking the grounds that day. I guess it's something they do on a weekly basis. 
and he had mentioned that it had been it had been for sale i think the and again i i could be wrong i'm i'm, I'm pulling this out of the memory bank the the family that owned it or the lady that owned it has passed and it's gone to her estate or whomever is handling that and and they figured they'd put it up for sale but they're having issues with it obviously it's zoned as an airport so they're and it's sandwiched between a golf course and a, and a neighborhood though so i think the zoning and dividing the property has become an issue um you've been there so when you drive back to the airport when you get to the pad that the cast lands on in dawn of the dead next to the the field house it then goes down a, a, a hill to where the mm-hmm. the uh hangers are so I'm not quite sure what their plan would be if they were going to go residential. I don't think they're going to go commercial because it's just an entire neighborhood back there. So you're not going to put shops back there. But Yeah, but I, th- I think if it were to be zoned for residential, you could certainly find a way to toss a few cul-de-sacs back there and I, you know, I, make I, money. I, the street you pass to get there has the Creep Show house from yep. the wraparound story, which is on a cul-de-sac. Chances are that's what that would become. Uh, the airport is still used. I've never been out there when they've been landing planes, but I've been out there when people are, you know, preparing to go for a flight. So I know it's still an active airport. So what is your opinion, yay or nay? Um, is that a location that fans need to try and protect somehow? Or, or um, is there anything... That could be done on that particular location. Anthony says, "I would love to protect it. You know, it, it's it's a easily accessible, fan-friendly location to attend. But the the realist in me is like, how would we do it? You know, right. we you know you'd have to amass a, a few very well-off fans to purchase the location. But then you've got maintenance, you've got taxes." You know, it has to be income-producing. So, what about what about narrowing it down to just simply the airport house and the land that it's sitting on? Maybe just try to preserve that for I don't know, seventy-five, 75 grand or something. Do you think that would be even worthwhile? <laughs> if you were able to purchase that piece of land from the landing pad to the house, that would be wonderful to purchase. Uh, and then put the the road to the residence, the, the the houses off to the right where the runway is, and have them go back. I, I would absolutely love to see that because if you get out there at the right time, there's guys out there that will let you into the field house mm-hmm. where Dawn was filmed. They're very aware of what was filmed there. They're very open with fans coming out. And the couple of times I've been out there, just most recently this past June. Uh, I took a couple of friends that had never been there, and there was a groundskeeper there. And I was like, hey, you know, a buddy of mine came in from Illinois, Michigan, and New York, and they really wanted to see this place. You know, can can we let him in? He goes, sure, here you go. He opened it up and left. Wow. Just <laughs> left, left me and four other guys just literally play in that field house for a half an hour. It's a location that is, you know, so fan-friendly that, you know, people just – they bypass it. They don't know how close it is to the mall, and and they just never get there. Yeah, to me, um, if you go to 
Monroeville, that's the holy trinity of location. It's the, obviously the mall, then you have the, um, the airport and then the, the redneck area just off the airport. Yeah, um, and the creep show house. I mean, you got four yeah. iconic and easily recognizable Romero locations within a five-minute drive of each other. Yes, you, I mean, you absolutely, you must hit the creep show house. You're right there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, maybe that's an idea. I don't know. If we'll, we'll have to see if it gets closer to sale, if anybody sparks any outrage. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, we'd have to get – I don't. I personally, I don't know if I'm outraged. I, I think it's a long shot to even try something. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's worth asking, I suppose. But I, we, we, we need to get in front of these things, kind of like the bridge – from a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. I mean, we got to think, uh, let's think ahead on some of these and maybe we can avoid more scenarios like that. But, but yeah, I, I, I doubt it's likely we could do anything with the airport. Um, on the same token, I wanted to discuss some locations that are no longer there. Um, uh, friend of the show, Lee Carr, uh, was, Taking Jay Scott and I to see the uh, the uh, the elevator shaft from from Day of the Dead, and they had uh, leveled it. When, when we got there, we found it leveled. It was a, uh, a subdivision, so we never got to check it out. But I, I know you you got to go there. It, it was just behind a gate that had a few houses around it. And the gate was wide enough underneath it. We just slid underneath and walked up. And he had found what shaft it was and uh, walked down into it. It was completely dark, obviously. You know, so it was neat to see the door and and the the, the electrical boxes and and everything being out there. So that was that was my only time there, and I I was thankful to to have visited it. And that was in Irwin, just outside of Irwin. Right. And, yeah, I guess, when did you guys go out? We tried to go there, it was 2011, and it was, yeah, they were they just, I mean, it, it was freshly done. Um, I mean, in fact, we were kind of poking around to see if we could, it's strange to think that they're throwing houses on top of that stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's just so weird to know that someone's basement could literally be where they, they filmed the zombie mm, <laughs> you know, yep. within that same space and, and and everything and oh man i know that that's one that i'm glad to glad to see before it before it went away mm-hmm. um let's see uh, another one that we've both been to that is now no longer there is the um the police dock house from dawn of the dead um i, I think i I just checked out the perimeter of it. It was maybe '04, I want to say. Checked it out during the daytime, and I think it was you and Lee that had discovered it. Yeah, like, Lee, Lee, Lee had discovered it. I think shortly before he had taken me out because I, I honestly want to say that the police dock was the night before the the day elevator, because okay. I just I, I just remember them being very close together, and if it wasn't the the same weekend it was within like a two-week period because i remember that no four going out a couple of times with him on on some location visits very close together and when we had gotten there 
there was a shack still standing and I and I can't remember if it was the shack or not. Um and it it may have been, I can't remember, but we went I'm pretty and, sure it was. I'm pretty sure it was the where Flyboy finds the operator dead. Mm-hmm. They still had the steps going down to to the mm-hmm. water. Um and I had that was the the only time I was there until probably oh 2013 2014 when I went out with Adam the Woo for his yeah. location tour and we had gone back down and they've really transformed that area into like a running park or you know mm-hmm. an area for people to run and walk down to the waterfront very yeah. beautiful and you can still see some remnants of what was there yeah um, you can still just, kind of take it's concrete steps now but you can still kind of take steps down to uh to the river yep yeah but that's that's another one that was quickly discovered and quickly gone um obviously j c penney's uh demolition from a few years ago that you've documented very well that that that's um, still an open wound <laughs> well, you know what it actually that's the reason uh John and I got off our asses and met in Pittsburgh that time was because they were going to be destroying it the following spring, so we got out there one last time. Yeah, that you know, a- anyone that knows me knows my affinity for the mall, mm-hmm. and it's like you said, it's well documented my trip to the mall. I- I've been out in Pittsburgh so much, people think I'm from there. <laughs> and <laughs> but there was there was just something about Pennies, not just the mall itself, but every single trip to the mall, I would park at Pennies, walk in the door close to see the elevator, do a quick turnaround, look at the elevator walk through pennies and walk out where they shot the the infamous no more room in hell scene and just kind of took it in and as as weird as it sounds and it might not sound weird to the listeners but i can still smell jc pennies to this day like it just hmm. it, you know like you smell a certain cologne or you smell your grandma's house you know there's certain scents in life that you you carry with you i carry that sense of jc pennies with me and I, I spent a lot of time in the mall. I spent a lot of time in that store. I would go out every Christmas and do Christmas shopping and buy something from J.C. Penney's to either give to my wife or to give to someone. Or, and she always bought me something from Penny's. It was usually something Steeler-related or something, you know, for work or something. But she was always like, I got that for you at Penny's. So she always made sure I knew that that was a J.C. Penney Monroeville Mall exclusive item. Yeah. From what I understood, the mall really didn't want them to stay there because they were taking up two floors, mm-hmm. and which is why when you go to the mall now, Penny's is a single-floor store above another store. Not like it's in the same location anymore. Not like it you know, looks the same, but you know, there's still a J.C. Penny's in the Monroeville Mall. And there's been one there for 40-plus years. <sighs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think that one stings the most. Yeah, every I remember it's the Monday of Columbus Day when when Lee and I were out there and they basically locked us in the store and said, "All right, here you go." And come to find out, like a week later, that the they were not allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the destruction that Lee and I uh, did to that mall or to that store was was very unplanned and apparently not cool. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, but you know, you got your you got your your fan, right? The the asbestos fan, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure when I get lung cancer, I can trace <laughs> it back to that one moment inhaling 40 years of asbestos dust. It's the fan out of the elevator. Ripping that thing off the elevator. And, oh man, yeah. I pulled that thing down. It's got a face full of dust. I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, you were okay. I was totally envisioning you on the top, just ripping it. You know. No, no, we pulled it down from the inside. That one okay. was from the inside. Excellent. Yeah, we were we were all the benefactors of your efforts. So. But still, I mean, I'd much rather it just be sitting in there for all to be admired. I would um, I would say a good forty percent of that elevator was salvaged. Uh, Kevin Christ, the the curator of the Living Dead Museum, he has the doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, when me and Lee closed, we found that there was still Dawn of the Dead blood on the doors. Because on the wood paneling, yeah. No, not on the wood right. paneling. On the on the elevator doors, the metal doors. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, because that that. The scene where where Dave Emge shoots the one zombie in the head, and you see a big blood spurt. Oh, the uh, well, the Crosby, Stills, and Nash zombie. Yeah, <laughs> is the blood shot between the doors. So when they cleaned it off, obviously it was the outer door, so no one's going to see it. So they didn't clean it. Mm-hmm. Next to knowing that the paneling was still there was like to me one of the greatest discoveries I think we've ever found. Yeah, and that that, that that was unreal to like touch the door with the dried blood on it, just thinking like, wow, you know, this is actual production Dawn of the Dead blood still there. Um, oh, can you think of any others that have been? Uh, well, if we're talking Romero, you ha- you have to talk about the House of Night. Oh, of course, of course. Unfortunately, no one outside of production got to visit. I, I think know, that we, that would be almost worth rebuilding. I think. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a a house standing on the property now, but there are still original trees from the from the driveway to the the house that are still there, which which is neat to to look at. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, kind of a, a sidebar. I have a friend of mine, Kenny, in North Carolina, built an exact replica of the Myers house. Uh huh. And, and he he holds a. a a festival every Halloween weekend. Um, you know, that'd be neat for someone to do for Night of the Living Dead. And if they could do it in Evan City, it'd be great, you know, to have, you know, the Living Dead weekend or whatever event in Evan City on that property if you're able to, you know, have that many people show up, you know, and mm-hmm. have a property big enough. But I, I think that would be wonderful to do if someone has, you know, the, you know, the original house with that layout and, you know, with some, I guess, some modern amenities, you know, with an actual basement, <laughs> not just a dummy door. I think we just described the ultimate layout for Kevin's museum. That would be the ultimate if he could create that, craft that, and then put the museum inside the house, you know. Well, you got the project. Yeah. From, no, that, that would have been nice. You know, those, those are, are long since gone. Um uh, Firearms Unlimited, which is still there, but a different store. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think. There's lots of locations that have been a lot, very unattainable for, for fans to get a hold of for various reasons. Uh, probably the, the only other one that I can think of that is, I don't want, want to say not there, but 
it's it's not accessible and it's not going to look the same, but is the top office floor for 247 Fort Pitt where they film the apartment scene. Yeah. Yeah, you know? I, I got up there once. Yeah, I went up to the offices. Well, I went up to the offices when when they the the one day they allowed me to go in the basement. Uh-huh. Um, but they were like, "Yeah, no, you're not going to recognize it. It's all office space and everything." So I didn't get a chance to get up there and see it. We got uh, we did we did the basement for a while and um, we're basically left to roam, you know, for better part of a half hour and then came up and begged the receptionist to let us on the roof. This is in 04. Mm-hmm. And uh, she let us up there for a while, and uh, it's pretty much exactly like it was during filming. Nice. Um, and uh, unfortunately, when we came back through, I, I didn't realize it, but I'd stepped on, like, some tar or some roof goo, <laughs> tracked it all through the <laughs> through the lobby of the place <laughs> on the way <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I've gone back in recent years. I took the family there in 13, 2013, and um, the receptionist led us into the basement, but uh, only for a couple seconds. You know, just yeah, a couple pictures, get the hell out of here, and we were we were stretching it, even asking for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and that just made me think of another. On location that that's still around but definitely looks different is the television studio. Oh yeah, yeah. With the with the way they condensed the main studio and kind of just yeah, the whole building is really altered. Very yeah. little looks the same. Yeah, that that was another 2004 trip that that Lee and I had taken. We got we got about a I'd say about a half an hour uh, tour and and got to go into the main newsroom and you know, kind of goof around for a couple of minutes and, and just kind of walk around. And, you know, to a, to a George Romero fan, sometimes it's just nice to be there. Just even to breathe the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and I, get, I get that a lot when people talk to me about the mall. They're like, it doesn't even look the same. I'm like, put on your Dawn of the Dead glasses and walk through the movie with that filter. You know? Yeah, you, especially that back corner, uh, the loading dock corner. That's That's still pretty close to the way it looked during filming. If if not identical. Oh, I'm sure it's fine. I, I would say it's pretty close to identical. The brickwork's the same, the doors yeah. pretty much the same design and layout, I doubt. The much hill. Of that has changed. Yeah. Well that was the other thing too is um was that establishing shot when the helicopter's flying over the mall and you see a set of stairs uh-huh. you see light poles. I could never find that. And there's there's two locations at the back of the mall that have concrete stairs and railings. Couldn't find it, could find it. And we were out there late one night, and Chris Devrakis had come out and was walking around, and we were like, Chris, w- w- where is this at? And he goes, oh, it was right here, and it's right outside the loading docks, right on the corner of the mall, at the edge of the loading docks, right where the overhang is, there's... Um, a raised stone wall and it stepped up two or three levels with, with trees on it. That's where that was. Huh. So they, okay. they had torn it out sometime I'd say probably in the 80s or 90s because it's never been there in all my years of going and I first went in 99. And he goes, oh no, that was right here. You, you can kind of see on the wall where they used to have you know, 
concrete adjoining to the wall that had been pulled off. And and the the stone walls that they had built looked slightly different than the rest of them. And you could see it was right there. And we took our phone out and, and had the movie on our phones and we're looking at it. Yep, it's right there. So you can see that in that first helicopter shot when they first see the mall. They start doing those different establishing shots. And it's the first time you see the helicopter, like from, from the ground up. Oh. The helicopter come over. Okay, okay. And that's, that's, it was back there right next to the loading dock. And I, I haven't gone back to the movie and watched the end of the film when the bikers are out there to look at it in the background, but I'm, I'm certain it's there. But, okay. yeah, Chris, Chris is as much of a, a, a Dawn expert as, as anyone else that we know. And, and yeah, it, it, it's definitely where they were. And I guess they had just taken them out because whatever reason, they just wanted to add more trees. Interesting. You know, we focused on a lot of the stuff in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we tend to forget that George made four films in Canada. That's right. You know, we're... A lot and, of that stuff, is, is some of that stuff uh, in danger? Or is it... Well, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in Canada this summer after George's passing. And one of the things I finally decided to do was visit from Bruiser and you know next to probably the the three films in that George box set that's coming out Bruiser is a grossly underseen film of George's um, for, for various reasons but I had always wanted to visit some of them I'm like I, I need to see where this movie was filmed and so I had finally you know tracked down a bunch of locations I had spent probably a good couple of weeks in in June and July watching the movie, listening to the audio commentary, and finally discovering pretty much all of the locations that were used. I had visited the mansion that was used for Peter Stormare's character. Now, that's in a gated community. I couldn't get up past the driveway, but I screen matched a, a shot from the movie with an interior shot of the house that also doubled for in another movie, Kick-Ass 2. Uh, so I, I didn't get to go in, but I, but I got to see it from the outside. Uh, decorate, you know, it's a, it's a $9 million mansion, which has obviously been renovated a lot in 18 years. Um, the, the, the big one for me was finding the house that uh, the character Henry Creedlow, um, Jason Fleming's character, lives in which in the film is un- was under construction literally right. under construction the house was being built but there was no identifying marks on the property no address labels no nothing and there was nothing around it so i had gone up to a screening of survival in early august and the director of photography adam swicka was there and he had done bruiser so I had asked him, I said, hey, look, this is what I'm looking for. Do you remember anywhere near, can you give me a neighborhood? And he's like, oh, I think it was filmed somewhere between Route 50 and Route 7. I said, perfect, <laughs> that's what I need. So I went home and I started Google Earthing all the neighborhoods in that area, like street view, overview, everything, looking for it. And I was, I, I was coming up short. About a week later, 
I came in contact with a gentleman who had George's director's chair from Bruiser. And he had production documents. And I contacted him and his niece, and I was like, look, I want to buy this. I'll come up and pick it up, and they give me another reason to go to Canada. Um, but do you have, you know, what, what documents do you have? And he goes, oh, he's like, well, I have this. And he shows me, okay, let me back up. The hot tub scene in Bruiser was shot at his house. I was like, well, do you have anything, you know, that you can show me so that when I get up there, I can potentially find this house? He goes, oh, I don't know. And I had sent him a picture of the house. I was like, do you recognize it? He goes, no. So he found an envelope that had insurance documents, but it also had a day one call sheet because um, his house was used on day one. Mm-hmm. And on the back of the call sheet was the address to the house that Jason Fleming's character was living in. So to me, was my, that was my holy grail sitting right there. And it was probably a mile from where his house was on the other side of the neighborhood. And when I went to Google Earth and looked, they had added a second story to the house about five years ago. Wow, but, and that's a huge yeah. house as a fifth. And they had added a gate to it as well, a retaining wall and a gate. But when I, you know, when I when I Google Earth it and I'm pulling up the movie, I have the movie on my TV and I'm on my laptop and I'm looking, I'm like, that's it. Um, so I got to go and visit and actually talk to the owner. And he goes, well, it's completely different inside. He goes, it was remodeled. But he let me walk around the outside and take all the photos I wanted for like 20 minutes. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I had found the the tennis club uh, that they, they shot in. That was under construction as well when I had gone up in July, so I couldn't get in. Um, I'm just trying to think of, of other locations. Um, one that will probably be disappearing soon is the opening project scene from Diary. No kidding. It's right on the edge of an up-and-coming district in eastern Toronto. Mm -hmm. And there's probably seven or eight of those buildings left. But right across the street from it is a brand-new, you know, park, recreation area. They're really revitalizing the neighborhood. And these are older buildings. They had already torn down three or four of them because you could see the rubble and where they used to be. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty convinced until that point that this was it had been gone because I couldn't match it right but I finally I wasn't looking at the one building right um kind of like turned my head and changed my angle and I found it but I I I will be safe to say in the next year or two that that location will probably be gone man yeah I've been meaning to get up there and do those uh those Canada locations need to put a priority on that yeah there's a lot of his stuff in Canada was exteriors or stages. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, Brookfield Place, which which doubled as Fiddler's Green, where Lee and I shot. Uh, there's a, the, the mansion from Diary is actually like a wedding venue. I don't want to say wedding venue, but it, it, it's, a, it's in a nice piece of property, and, and weddings happen there all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Cherry Street Bridge is where Greg Nicotero filmed his Bridgekeeper zombie scene. Yeah. That still looks exactly the same. 
um, the farm that I filmed at for survival still looks exactly the same. I stopped by there, and that was the first time I had been up there in nine years. Looked exactly the same. Like, nothing has changed. Um, okay. Bruiser, the the climactic scene with the party in the the old factory district, uh-huh. that has since been revitalized and changed. Like, the buildings are still there, but they're all shops and malls and, and all sorts of other stuff. So that that you can't really get to either. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to think of any other... There's a couple locations from Diary uh, and Survival and Land that I haven't gotten to that are more western Ontario, which I'd have to hit on the way to or from Toronto, and they're kind of out of the way. Have you ever so found the, uh, the location where the militia was, the militia that they encounter in Diary? No, I don't know what town that was in. I um, Diary, they shot Toronto. I think they shot that in kind of the suburbs. It could be Hamilton, Brampton, Mississauga area. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I probably could find a general area, but I, I don't even know the town name. I'm going to have to go back and watch the movie and see if I can see, like, a street name or something and kind of kind of play around on Google Earth, which is what I got really adept to this summer. Go ahead and uh, let's get into the interview that we uh, conducted with composer, musician, and actor Donald Rubenstein. Um, well, for, first, I wanted to ask you um, how you first got into music, how you first became inspired to play music. Well, that came out of a world of listening. As a child in my house, there was not a, a lot of, um, there was a lot of recorded music. My brother was five years older than I, who later became um, partners with George, and he had a, a widespread set of tastes, which included, uh, we shared a bedroom, and it, it ran the gamut in the 60s from uh, folk to jazz, and then my parents would listen to classical. And music, I, I just always adored it along with reading. It was, it was a um, primary inspiration for me. And I did play a little guitar as a kid, but I did not focus on music. I was focused on uh, reading and sports, and uh, went to school initially, um, well, after the in- initially but shortly thereafter I to study poetry with Howard Nemeroff at Washington University and I've told this story before but the short of it is that I had so much music was always uh, perhaps my greatest aspiration not aspiration exactly um, <laughs> but, but, but more so uh, inspiration and, and when I saw that some friends of mine had uh, picked up the guitar in a short time was, was sounding pretty good I thought to myself, I'm going to pick up that guitar again, man, and see what's going on. And, and as soon as I, I just realized that I had a propensity for it, and it was just a burning desire, I, I switched my focus entirely onto music. Two years later, I was in a conservatory, and I never looked back. So music just, uh, yeah, compri- comprised a great part of my, uh, of my, just what I aspired to as a youth. And, and so embracing it. 
I just became wholehearted once I did. Was there uh, was there any particular artists that inspired you early on? Yeah, I was inspired by a multitude of artists. It's, it's sort of made up. It's made up the uh, the roadmap of uh, my career and my and my musical and artistic pursuits in general. They were varied. I, I really loved. Uh, like I remember in one of George's movies, I played um, this tune by Oscar Brown Jr. called Signifying Monkey. So uh-huh. I had this Oscar Brown Jr. record my parents had that I really loved. And that's a, he sort of a, was, a, was a jazz singer. And um, and then I loved Bob Dylan and the entire folk, Tim Buckley. And uh, I always leaned towards a, an, an amalgam of, of the accessible and the more avant-garde. I always liked all that. And I became enamored with contemporary classical music and modern jazz. Thelonious Monk was a, a big influence. I have a picture of myself, which I think might explain my influences more succinctly. As a teenager, I think maybe 16 years old, I'm sitting in my bedroom and I'm holding a Thelonious Monk record to my chest. It's an old underground. And, and behind me is a Bob Dylan poster, and next to that is a Mother's, Mother's of Invention poster, and at my feet were a, a number of reel-to-reel tapes I was listening to by the classical contemporary composer Stockhausen. And so there is always a great, uh, just a, a very natural interest in all kinds of music, and it, any kind of real creative invention drew me. I was very interested in, in pushing the boundaries of things. And um, of course, there was the, my interest in, in, in reading and in, in, in uh, not only poetry, just books. Books created a great, you know, enormous landscape in my mind that, as a child, I read incessantly. So that also contributed to the to the artistic landscape. Um, you know, turned itself towards lyrics eventually, predominantly. But I uh, have written a number of books of poetry. But yeah, so that whole amalgam became roadmap for me and the music was buried and always always was and after that I might have uh, focused on one thing or the other musically because I had opportunities as I moved forward even, even in my early 20s but I always had this dogged desire to keep exploring other other genres and other mediums and it kept me from focusing not succinctly on for instance being a rock and roll star or, or you know or uh, just composing film scores or whatever. I just always was leaning from one thing to the other with a, with a purpose and with a great interest. Um, I think the first project you were involved in um, that I was aware of was Martin, the film score, but were you were you involved in recorded music prior to that? I hadn't recorded uh, a record. I had um, opposed a lot and I was I was follow up on what I said earlier, I was completely dedicated to my musical career by then, so I had already, already had a short-term, I had a short-term, uh, uh, short-term contract with Warner Brothers when I was 23 as a singer-songwriter, which I, which I chose to walk out on, and uh, it's typical of me at the time, because um, I wasn't satisfied with what was going on, but that was just a, a project in the making, they signed me short-term, and our guy did, and the idea was to, for me to focus on my songs, and and the like. So there was a, um, there was a, there wasn't any, Martin was the first thing that I recorded, but I had written a tremendous amount of music and I was being asked to write music for people and I had my own group, what I called the folk jazz group at the time, which was my 
about multimedia extravaganza. I called it the Donny Rubenstein show at the time, and it included included sort of um, funky, weird sets and and uh, record, pre-recorded music, and, and it was sort of an event. So um, I was completely committed as an artist by the time I met George. In fact, I was sort of my brother who had met George, and and and, and uh, they decided together to pursue Martin asked me if I'd be interested in writing the score because they had uh, didn't have a lot of money. The budget was very small. And when Richard first asked me, I said, I don't know, man. You know, I wasn't I wasn't like <laughs> completely. Uh, I didn't jump at it because I was so uh, taken with what I was doing beyond that. And I was studying studying uh, piano at the same time with a great piano teacher, a warm up piano teacher, and the like. So yeah, I had a I had a pretty invested, you know, egocentric young twenties. <laughs> Uh, musical, uh, artistic uh, avenues sort of mapped out, and I hadn't considered uh, writing film scores. Uh, but uh, Richard, so at first I said, I don't know, let me think about it. And people laugh at that, but it's true. And then I realized when she told me it was George and that he made Night of Living Dead, I said, oh man, forget it. Hell, totally, I want to meet this guy because I love that movie. I saw it in college and I, it, 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 I loved it. So once I realized who he was and so that that was your first encounter with George? Was yeah, my brother introduced us, and my brother said, "Well, why? You know, George is going to be in Boston, where I was living. Why don't why don't you um, one of you guys meet and see how that goes? You know, because like I said, they had very little money, and um, George was open to it, and, and so we just we met, man, and we just hit it off from the first moment he walked through the door. Um, yeah." I asked him if he could take his coat and he threw it down on the ground. <laughs> he said that. I said, hey, man, here's some jacket just throws it on the ground. And we went from there. We just, we hit it off. We found that we had an immediate creative simpatico. And so from there, I wrote some sketches. Uh, you know, he gave me this, I don't know if I got a script at that point, but at least some of it, perhaps. And uh, I wrote some sketches for the, for the score. Yeah. Okay, so you conceived of the, the score based on on the written word and not, uh, you, you weren't, you didn't see any of the dailies or anything? I didn't, know, man. I got, when, once what happened was I wrote these sketches and they, they gave me a little bit of money and I had, um, I mean, a little bit just to pull together some guys and so that we could play what I had written. And we, I got together with some folks and we just made a rough recording of, you know, uh, three or four things that I had sketched out. Yeah, entirely from the written word. I, I don't remember if at that point it was a full score or not, but eventually I did what I did write for that film was very much taken from the score. I did not see dailies. Subsequent to the film getting pretty much completed, um, I went back in places where we needed music. I then wrote to some specific scenes, and we did another a sort of a short-term recording session to fill in the spaces. But it turned out that the... Uh, the um, the sketches that I wrote, uh, and I had no idea if they'd like them or not, I, 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 I recorded them and got on the plane and flew to Pittsburgh to see George and went up to their office and uh, immediately there always, those guys are great, George and Mike Warnick, and I, I forget who else was there. There were, there were four, maybe four guys sitting around when I came in and maybe one of the bloopers, I'm not sure. But, um, they were excited and always immediately ready. Let's, they wanted to go right down to the basement where their recording um, setup was and listen to the sketches. And 
So we went down there, and, and Mike uh, queued him up on tape machine. I think I brought a reel-to-reel and uh, tapes. And uh, we listened. And I told the story before, but we listened, and uh, there was, like, complete silence after it finished. No one said a word, like, for, like sort of a heavy, you know, heavy silence. It was, like, a, a while. And I was sitting there and just waiting to see what happened. And all of a sudden, Mike Gornick, I believe, said, perfect. <laughs> and then everyone kind of slapped me on the back. George slapped me on my back. And we all said, oh, oh cool. I'm glad to hear that, man. And so then um, once we had that under our belt, and George and I, and George knew, because his film that he, that there, it was what he wanted, then I went back and at some point received the entire script and, and proceeded to write most of the music and the thematic music from the script, I guess, while they were shooting. Back in Pittsburgh, I was writing. I sort of holed up for a couple of months, and, uh, and uh, that's all I did. Yeah, it was pretty brutal at the time. I mean, that was fine, but it was just, uh, that's all I did was just focus on that. Um, it's kind of an odd question. Uh, did you sure. ever ever get to? Odd is, odd is good. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever have a chance to see the original cut of Martin? I think it was supposedly in black and white, and it was a lot longer than the oh, version. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because uh, yeah, we also there was um, we lost a bunch of music along with that. So along with that too, there's some cues that I really that got somehow. Um, I don't know if they were just. Yeah, I did see it. It was it was great. Yeah, absolutely great. That was some of the, those are some of the tragic moments of George's output. Yeah, as great as Martin ended up being and as much response as it's gotten, yeah, but it's kind of like a vague, you know, for me it's a vague landscape in my brain because I don't know how many times I saw it, but I definitely saw it. And um, I uh, remember going to Pittsburgh and seeing it and loving it. You know, I loved the adventure of it, the boldness of it. It was, I forget how long it was. It was like two and a half hours or something. I don't remember that. Cut I saw. I really don't remember, but it was fairly long. But it was totally cool. Yeah, it was great. You, it was you wouldn't happen to know where. You wouldn't happen to know where it is, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I, 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 yeah, I've had it here in my. Uh, yeah, no, I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> crazy, man. What did happen to that thing? I mean, it's like it's like these car keys I lost about two weeks, no, a month ago. I'm still like. No, they have to be here somewhere. Still, I'm just about to give up on them, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, uh, <laughs> where did they go? So, like that. Yeah, they're, they're, I have no idea why anyone would... I just have no idea. Yeah, I, you must have it, I'm sure. Either you or, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe, uh, maybe Martin Schiff has it there. Someone waiting for everyone to die and then is going to go, you know, cash in on them. I have no idea. It's sitting in a box somewhere in someone's attic, I guarantee you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, isn't that true? That's probably the case, you know. And who knows? I have no idea. What was the story about that? Was it, were, were they sure it was a malicious stolen thing? That's what they used to say that was actually stolen, right? Wasn't that the deal? I think, yeah, I think that's the word, but uh, yeah. I can't get anything concrete on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's one of those things that have been lost to lore for the last 40 years. Like, no one can remember where this thing is or what happened to it or when it happened. And right. It, it, right. It's, in the, it's in that warehouse with the Ark from the end of Indiana Jones, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. I hear you. Somewhere. Who knows? Um, what, uh, did you get a chance to attend the, the Martin premiere? And uh, how, how did the film hit you? 
when you first saw it with the oh, music? Oh, man, I think, I think I did. I remember it was playing, I don't remember, man. I, I was so fairly oblivious back then and always working. I, I don't remember if I went to an actual premiere or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it was at the, I went, it was at the, um, in the, the West Village, it was playing Midnight. I remember going to see it there. Maybe that was a premiere of sorts, or maybe the premiere. I, I really don't remember. Um, but the film itself, uh, yeah, you know, it's too too deep into it. But I, I just went, you know, too deep. I'm so deep into it. I, I don't really know what I thought about it. I was interested in the in the themes and the um, ideas that George was, uh, um, you know, that the film uh, put forth. But those were always. Uh, of interest to me and George would speak about those at, at times and I think that that I had a, uh, a connection to that like the violence and where the violence coming from and, and that sometimes it would freak me out you know to work on it and with the with those scenes in there and I would be like oh man and then I uh, was pretty steeped in that whole psychology of course while I wrote it because that's what you do you just go way into it you know so once it was over, I was kind of glad to move away from that at the time. But I always found of interest George's um, perception and uh, his, uh, you know, sometimes his explanations about the film, in which he sort of note, would note that Martin uh, was, you know, the monster was us turned inside out, and he had us figured out while we didn't really have a clue about him. And I think that was a rather profound statement. Uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but the idea being that Martin Blake's represented violence that we carry inside ourselves and which lurks and which you know tends to control a lot of our lives you know to, to, to different extents of course um, but whatever problematic whether problems people have and, uh, and that were mirrored in him and then uh, it just was interesting that, that, that that's how he thought of it and that the uh, you know I like the idea that he had us figured out why we don't really you know half of us don't know what we're doing especially when you're young you know at the time what you're doing you're propelled by a lot of things and uh, they may not be the source may not be clear so mm-hmm. that was a bit just moving, moving forward with the film but I admired the film I, I liked it a lot I, I, I thought it, the script was um, fantastic I, I wouldn't have responded to it the way I did if not for that it was just deep and dark and I responded to it maturely you know in a material way the same way I think George wrote it you know from his subconscious there's a certain amount of intellectual comprehension and like but it really delved uh, deeply and darkly into 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 dramatic material that um, I just wound myself up in trying trying to uh, be there and mirror you know the uh, expression that George had so incredibly uh, rendered in the script it was a really profound script in fact I don't think I've read a script I would have read one script script about five years ago. I thought, man, this is almost as good as Martin. But Martin really is probably the best script I've ever read. Well, um, it, uh, it seems like, on paper, it seems like uh, Dawn of the Dead comes pretty hot on the heels of Martin, but yeah. I, I believe there was a, a maybe a year and a half, two-year gap between right. filming. Um, did you... Uh, and I... You released uh, an album. Um, actually, Matt, did you want to ask a few questions about the uh, the Dawn album? Yeah, I, I seem to recall at some point, weren't you supposed to also provide the score for Dawn of the Dead? Yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely very predominantly on the table. 
George asked me to write some some uh, themes, and yeah, that was uh, yeah, that for sure. But then they they got into a deal with uh, Dario Argento, and uh, I think it was, and uh, that's the way it goes, man. That's what happens. You know, they wanted to do, they wanted they, the music was important to them, so they wanted to uh, they made that part of their demand and the deal for offering financing. I think whoever you know that, that the music be under their under you know that they that they have control of the music so yeah I spent some time and I wrote some things some orchestral things and uh, the like and um, later used them in different pieces and that record that Perseverance released about I don't know was it 2014-2015 has a bunch of that thematic material in uh, that I wrote for Dorn a lot of it's uh, some of it I rendered a few some years later not that maybe in I was doing 1980s or 87 or something. I did a um, a bunch of synth uh, uh, renditions which incorporated those themes, which I like quite a lot. Still haven't been used to anything in there. Um, I, I did at that time uh, do that whole synth landscape because there was a film that I was, I was maybe going to do and uh, and decided not to. But and then there was a, a piece of chamber orchestra. So yeah, I. I don't know if these are two uh, long-winded explanations. You can stop me anytime, but I, I, I did write things for the for the score, and I, I did did expect that we were going to go forward. But so it goes with you know deals and the financing. That's what happened. Yeah. So that that record with that perseverance put out. How much of that was original, and how much did you come back to to complete that to to, to get the record out? Uh, well, that record's an amalgam of things. So uh, I, I, um, I had a, it all, it all, I, it, it, it drew from things that had already been recorded but had never been released. So, and about, I don't remember exactly. I haven't listened to it for quite a while, but probably three quarters of it is drawn directly from those themes that I wrote for George. Although, when I realized them as in both the chamber piece, uh, piece for chamber orchestra, which is for eighteen musicians and that was recorded and that's about 10 minutes long and then there's a number of synth pieces that I, 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 I um, recorded and performed. They, those were all extrapolations of the themes beyond what, uh, you know, because I never had a chance at the time to complete the thematic material and turn it into a score for Dawn. So I had basically the thematic ideas and then they were applied to different, uh, you know, uh, different in a different context so they were uh, completed in that sense so they're not meant to be the record is not meant to mirror a score for Dawn of the Dead because they weren't realized in that way but the themes which I think are, are you know are fairly clear are definitely uh, what you know uh, are at the core of those pieces that are on that record and then I, I threw in some other pieces not throw them in but there's some other pieces that I have which have never been released which I thought had just some um, audio oral relationships with music that was already on that that we were including in that release and I included those as well so and that's natural to me because I still I, I, I many times on you know throughout like whatever about 30 records early on especially I used a lot of juxtaposition of, uh, of different musical approaches so to include things that were not drawn from those original themes or which I thought had a relationship, musical relationship on the record was, uh, you know, creatively a, a, a natural thing for me. So I felt like it all worked pretty well. I'm curious um, if you are uh, 
familiar familiar with the Italian progressive group Goblin and um, what you thought about the music, some of the music that they did for Dawn of the Dead? Yeah, I have no opinion about it. I never really even listened to them. Maybe I heard them in it, you know, I heard them in the film and I heard them inadvertently on occasion, but I have no opinion. I never put my, um, I never really put my ears to it. Uh-huh. So I don't, I can't give you an answer. I'd be happy to if I had, uh-huh. you know, and I could answer, but I just haven't. Do you, do you like it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. they they also did a lot of work with Dario Argento, and I'm I, right. I, I like a lot of the work they did with him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's yeah, their soundtrack was, stuff is their best. Oh, cool. Yeah, I didn't. I've never really. I've just never taken the time to really listen. Yeah, so I don't, I couldn't give you an answer. And also, I had I didn't have a huge propensity for horror films. I mean. Um, uh, I mean, I, I admired some things in the genre. I, that's something George and I shared because I, I don't think I mentioned, but I was definitely a film buff, you know, early on. Loved films, and, and they made a big impression on me, even all through my, you know, 20s and moving forward. So, um, and, and some of my, I did have some, you know, favorites among the classics, but I, I didn't, never really uh, pursued, uh, you know, watching a lot of horror films to say. I love George is not a living dead. I mean it scared scared it scared the shit out of me, but I also like the um you know, the humorous the the the, the you know, it's just an art it was a vision, it was his vision and I like the whole the whole thing. It's very funny too. Oh, um I've gotta ask how uh how your zombie uh cameo came about for Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, I just went to visit, I think, you know, George Richard said, you know, come on out, you know, just come visit, you know, I don't know, they asked me to visit, so, um, you know, at that point I wasn't scoring the film, so I was just standing around, I came out to Pittsburgh, said, hey to everybody, and was standing around, and then, you know, they start yelling, you know, make him a zombie, that's, that's really what happened, and uh, I hadn't asked for that, or, you know, I thought about it, but, you know, did <laughs> put myself into it as best I could, and uh, it was fun to do, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much how it happened. I was just standing there watching him shoot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, one kind of ganged up on me. He said, come on, man, you got to do it. So I said, sure. That was that. And uh, so you just spent the one day, and then you just kind of they ended up recruiting you as a zombie. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I just came in to say hi to everybody. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's when he come back again. So I just I came, and uh, that was it. And, uh, yeah, they just recruited me. And yeah, I'm, have you seen the film? And what did you think about your your appearance? Oh, I didn't have many thoughts about my appearance. I just um, I uh, I remember my arms reaching out. You know, I was trying to do something <laughs> when I do it. I tried to tried to, to do a good job. And uh, um, of course, I saw the film. And uh, no, I wasn't too attached to my appearance one way or the other. I did notice that my face ended up on the cover of some comic book at some point. And uh, George said to me, or Richard, I don't know, but then, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, I, I thought, you know, I thought it was cool. I, you know, it was not something I was, you know, I've been unduly attached to since, so, that's about, mm-hmm. yeah, but I thought it was cool and I enjoyed it, yeah. They um, did a good job, I thought, you know, so. Um, I wanted to, uh, Ask you about Night Riders, um, which you which you did the score to, uh, which also had an uh, acting role. Did that 
But how uh, how did that come about? Well, after dawn, um, when Night Riders came up, and I read the script, as George sent it to me. I really related to that script. I mean, because I uh, was involved, like I mentioned earlier on, I, I, I continued to have multiple interests. And I remember when I, um, well, I guess the short answer to that would be that originally George wanted to have Rick Wakeman do the score. The rock star, Rick, rock, you know, singer, composer Rick Wakeman was his first choice for that score. It's just someone who he really liked and he, and he could, you know, he, George always edited with music and I think he was editing to, you know, or writing, he wrote and edited to music, so I think he was writing some of Rick's music and just really liked it, you know. And, um, so I think he called me and said, man, you know, love you to do this one too but I just really hear Rick in this which was you know I said no problem he said but I'd love you to be in the film and and to uh you know play this role as a uh you know one of these troubadours and so I said yes to that and and then but I really what happened was I read the score it's probably one of the most aggressive stances I've ever taken in my life I I really related to not only the script, but at the time, I was, I had, I guess my, I still was, you know, composing, and I had my performing group, and I was doing a concert almost at the same time that I heard from George of Renaissance music. Well, it was a combination of some of my more modern compositions, or someone from the Boston Symphony had commissioned me to write a French horn solo, and then we became friends, and name was Peter Gordon, he was um, sort of a, uh, like Soul, he, he also recorded with Jacob Pistorius as well as playing with the Boston Symphony and so, and, uh, and was a, uh, he was a trailblazer in terms of taking the French horn out of just the classical concept text. And, and, and anyways, we became friends and we would, um, uh, so for this concert we prepared a number of Renaissance guitar duets, you know, classical stuff that was written, not that I'd written. So I was doing this concert which had some of my folk music in it and, uh, this piece I'd written for Peter, because uh, he's still with the Boston Symphony, and which he's commissioned, and then these Renaissance pieces. And I was like, man, I'm so on the money for this music. I mean, I'm just right there. It just felt like it was meant to be. And so I didn't let go of it. I called up and said, I, I wrote a call to I said, listen, man, I should do the score. I'm the right person for the score, because I really felt that. I just felt that it was... My whole allegiance was to... to um, and still is, was to, uh, you know, the creative spirit, uh, to the creative, and I even drove, drove George crazy in that regard, because I was sort of an avatar of, of um, never, of non-compromise, you know, and so I had a very uh, intense, sort of uh, young and intense vantage point, and I just thought I was the right person for the score, and I, and I told George that, you know, a number of times, I was convinced, and so at some point, I don't remember exactly what happened. There were some questions about whether Rick could do it. Uh, but in the end, I don't know if Rick decided not to do it. I just don't remember. But in the end, he asked me to do it. And that's how I... So initially, I had the truth. I was going to do the, you know, be on, cam be on camera and act in the film, which I'd never done. But basically, I was being asked to play music during the film, perhaps do some incidental music. So the, the full score came on board by the time we were ready to shoot. And so at that point, it was like, man, why don't you just do both? You could be on the set, we'll 
get you a piano and, you know, an electric keyboard in your hotel room and you could, you know, write during the score. And I was down with that because um, I always liked, I wasn't so interested in money at, at all. I was more interested in the fact that I would have an extra, you know, four months to really dig into the score and into the music and, and being on set would afford that afford me that and then Martin I had a lot of time as well and both those things served me well and and what that was what, what was most important to me was doing a good job so I ended up uh, keeping that uh, yeah as I said so I, and we ended up doing both um, the uh, the song I'd rather be a wanderer was that always incorporated into the script no not at all it was um, let's see how that happened yeah, I had written that song previous to previous to the score. I actually wrote that song when I was 21 on the steps of the house where my parents lived and where I lived for my high school years. And um, I remember I'd come from St. Louis after college, and I was uh, on my way to Boston, you know, to begin my life, make my way, however, whatever, as a musician. And I stayed over at my folks' house, I think just for that one night on my way to Boston, and I sat, I didn't want to really sleep in my bedroom. I was pretty intense out there, guy. I, I just wanted to, um, I just felt I wanted to write this song about that adventure I was going on. And I sat all night on the sta- our basement stairs, and I wrote that song. And my intent, to be frank, was to write a great song. That's what I did. I thought of the three or four songs that I thought were great. Um, I mean, there are a lot of great songs. I admired so many musicians. But there were some songs that came to mind at the time. I, uh, uh, a couple of Dylan songs, Leonard Cohen's Bird in the Wire, Johnny Mitchell's Both Sides Now, Both Sides Now. Those songs were, I thought to myself, those are great songs. I want to write a song that's good as bad. And I sat there on the steps all night and wrote that song. You know, about this life adventure, I guess I was about to uh, go out on. And, uh, you know, you always try your best. You don't, you don't know that you're going to achieve that kind of, uh, uh, greatness, so to speak. Uh, and I'm not saying that I did. I just, that, that's always my intent. And so you try your best. You always end up with something tattered and <laughs> not, not what you expected it to be, but you, you have to set your sights on greatness or, or on, on the, on the, um, you know the uh, the most far-reaching uh, to do your best to just the, the pinnacle of what you can achieve. So that's how I thought, and so I just tried my best, and that's the song I came out with. And I think I left it the next day. So that song was already in my pocket. I don't know. And when I when we got to the film, at some point, I must have played it for George, and uh, or the, maybe I don't remember how it happened. The funeral scene was in the script, or maybe I mentioned this before. We, we even got. Because I read the script and I just thought that song made a lot of sense, and so I presented it to George, and um, yeah, he was, he was, yeah, man, it's perfect. Let's let's use it. So that's that's the um, history of how that came to be. And then, uh, so that was your basic question. I feel like I'm giving pretty long answers to very simple questions, but uh, that's perfect. Talk about this for a bit, so I hope it's okay. I did that answer your question, or was there more to it? No, that's great. Well, I am curious, but how did, uh, then backtracking to your scene where you first introduced the song to King Billy, how did all, how did all of that get incorporated into the script? Was that just... Oh, yeah, that was funny. Yeah, you know, 
that happened because so the song was already uh, yeah I think so the song was already in play but Ed and I Ed Harris and I became um, just good friends right from they we just uh, gravitated towards each other and became friends and in in, in, uh, good friends during the course of the shooting and I think Ed said to me Man, because I didn't have any speaking parts. I didn't act. I never acted in my life. You know, I didn't even know what actors did exactly. I used to really enjoy watching Ed uh, um, act in the film. Uh, just, you know, um, run his scenes and, and watch some good shot. He was a fascinating um, person to watch. He was, just, uh, he was just a ball of creative energy, man. He just, he always did things in a very innovative, interesting, you know, sort of gut, gut, uh, coming from the gut type of a way and yeah so Ed said to me I think Ed, Ed said to me man you know we should do a scene together I think that's what he said yeah I think pretty sure he said we should do a scene together I said really okay so um I said oh we got excited about the idea let's do a scene together and, and so uh we went to George and we said hey man you know we're like whatever 28 20 you know years old and she was maybe a little older but I um 27 28 and you know we were oblivious to uh protocol we could you know can't last we had no thoughts about that we just at least i used to try to a little crazy in that respect but we just went to george and said hey man we love we want to do a scene together <laughs> and so george looked at us and immediately said you know what that's a good idea because in fact george had some you know during the course of his shooting even though he wrote great scripts sometimes things of an improvisatory nature would would, would present themselves and and the film would take little turns here and there that were unexpected and often welcome. That's how things work. And, and, and he said, man, I've got some information that I really, we could use this scene for me to like sort of tie a couple of things together. And so I think that night, um, maybe George and Ed stayed up writing the scene. Hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, a couple of days thereafter. And then they showed it to me uh, the next day or whatever. And uh, at first I said, uh, no man, this is not this is not good enough. <laughs> so I was like, I set about to rewrite the whole thing, and then I realized that I was being sort of an idiot, and that I, that, that that what they had written or George had written, I don't remember. I think George and Edward was exactly what it should be. So I said, oh yeah, that's cool. Let's let's do it. So we, uh, yeah, that's how that came about, and then we uh, shot it, and I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never acted before, so um, I just did my best to sort of emulate. Uh, the process that I saw Ed involve himself in as an actor, which was so interesting and, and bold. So I tried to, uh, my best in my, you know, novice, uh, my nascent state, uh, you know, do the best I could. So you, you didn't catch the acting bug? Uh, no, I was, it took me a long time to really appreciate actors. It took me a while. I had no real interest in actors. I had great interest in film. And eventually I became, you know, uh, raving, you know, I just love actors and what they do. And, but at the time, no, man, music was pretty much my thing. I just didn't, uh, no, I didn't, it wasn't like a big ego thing to me at all. I had no interest in it particularly. I just was trying to do a good job. As a matter of fact, I know that I, because um, I think that I was fairly lost in my own world, my own creative, uh, you know, internal landscape at the time. And I remember that the first take we did said, watch Ed, and Ed seemed to kind of wait for inspiration to move him when he would do his takes on whatever scene he would, uh, so he never quite knew what he was going to do, he was surprising to watch, that's why he was fun to watch, 
even on a film uh, as opposed to on stage when a lot, more, a lot of spontaneous things might happen. He would, um, he never knew what he was going to do. He was always doing different things, different takes, always, you know, unexpected things. George would talk to me about how good he was, how physically good he was. He was a real, he was a very physical actor and had a lot of abilities, physical ability. And he, um, you know, beyond the other stuff he brought to it, and he, so I just tried to emulate him. So what I did was when it was my turn to take my first, uh, my very first, um, you know, take, you know, George said whatever they say, you know, action, I just sat there. And the reason I say, I wasn't just sitting there, I was just waiting to be struck by some kind of inspiration. And I sat there for quite a while and they ran out of film. <laughs> yeah. So George jumped up and he said, hey man, it was one of the few times I ever saw him annoyed me. He said, hey, hey man, you can't do that, man. You just gotta like, you know, you gotta just talk. I said, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I, I really didn't, you know, know. So we went from there and I got it together and I did the best I could. But that was pretty funny at the time. I met him leaping up in the air and everyone was just waiting. You know, I was just waiting for something to like, you know, move me. So that's how that went. But yeah, was, I'm glad we did the film. I did, I did the scene. And I, uh, subsequent to that, Ed asked me to act in a couple other things. And when I would, when we became good friends and I would visit in LA him and his wife. And uh, there are a couple of small things uh, that he asked if I would act with him. So I was, you know, happy to do that. And I did. But no, I never got. Now I wouldn't mind doing, you know, the acting thing. I mean, I, I became more and more comfortable over time. So that would be fun. But I, I don't, uh, I didn't, wasn't you mentioned you uh, became good friends with ed harris and that was you guys are still friends to this day and um can you talk a little bit about that and uh, the uh i know that there was a uh, a score to to his film pollock that went ended up going unused yeah ed and i were um yeah we became very very close friends and uh you know, just, you know, he's been one of the, um, you know, this ter terrific, we just had a tremendous um, connection, and uh, and um, we had a great time, you know, just being friends, I understand and on, but yeah, through to this day, you know, and so, um, I him in a couple of weeks, but um, him and his wife, but they, uh, oh, the, and so all that was cool, and when Paula came up, Ed said to me, um, uh, I actually was doing Bruiser by, by George, and mm -hmm. uh, Ed said, man, I'd like you to do Pollock, you know? And he thought I'd be perfect for it, and I thought, I hadn't been lobbied for that or asked for that at all. He's, and I think he was right, it was a good choice for the film, because I had an art background as well, and I really admired Jackson Pollock and was familiar with his work. And so it seemed like a really good match. And uh, uh, so we were a little rushed there because I was trying to finish George's thing and Ed started right on the heels of that. In fact, they overlapped a little bit. So. And you know, it was also Ed's very first time uh, uh, directing. But the, the, yeah, so in the end, he fired me from that film and I, I didn't complete it. And I, I have to take responsibility for that because uh, again, I think I was just, you know, like, I remember Ed said to me, uh, I don't know how long this was, well, maybe five years ago, ten years ago, when we were talking about it, you know, because we got past that and we were friends. And so he said, you know, man, if you had just compromised even 5%, we would have finished that film together. 
And that was my problem, is I didn't really quite know how to do that. And I didn't uh, hear... I mean, there are, other, there are other factors that were not, you know... Well, I was not involved in Ed's first film. The film changed a lot in terms of how Ed was going to present it. And I think at first there was room for a much more avant-garde approach. And as time went on, there was a, a more of a, uh, a... The story needed more of a... At least some traditional support via the music. And so... Uh, and in the end, though, I think I just, uh, on the heels of George's film and trying to get Edwin just a lot of pressure, and, and I just didn't quite get, get it right, and I agree with that, in terms, even though I like the music itself very much. I know that, that Captain Beefheart, he was listening to that. My Professor Score survived and was at least printed in part um, on Perseverance, and uh, I know that he was listening to that music uh, before he passed away, as I understand a member of his band told me that. He liked it a lot. And I like that music too, but I agree with that. It wasn't really quite on target for the film. But had I been just a little more able to go with the flow, it was a bumpy production. It, it fired a lot of people from the initial thing because he was just trying to find his way as a director. And, uh, you know, there's so much pressure put on you as a director. Or someone described it as a million little bees pecking at you, you know, biting at you all the time, asking you a thousand questions. And so... He was just trying to find his way through that process to establish his film, and so I think that was a... Um, so there were factors that made it more difficult, but I didn't really roll with that, all that as well as I should have, and I should have compromised more and like laid back and said, yeah, let's reassess this, let's get, let's take a different approach, whatever, things like that, which I, I, I wasn't doing. So um, for better or for worse, we parted ways on that film, so that's what happened. Did you compose the theme to Tales from the Dark Side, the television show? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. the, the, that's that's an amazing theme, and it just I, I don't think the credits aren't quite clear on that online. Well, I, I co-composed it with a friend of mine, Erica Lindsay, who's a saxophone player, so we wrote that together. Okay. And then I produced and performed it. It was originally, uh, so she happened to just come over while I was in the middle of uh, writing it, Ended up contributing to it, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but then I, uh, the theme itself. So yes, that's the answer to that. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, did you have any opportunity to work on any other Romero-related projects? Uh, you know, throughout the, um, a- I guess after, uh, after Night Riders, between Night Riders and uh, Bruiser. Um, yes, I did. Um, I mean, originally I was going to do Peep Show, but then that didn't pan out, work out. And then uh, George hired John, who's a friend of mine, and as well, we became friends way back then. And actually just sent uh, some music that Dawn imagined and uh, mm-hmm. one of the Martinelle pieces of John yesterday. He's a good man but um, and a good director. But uh, as far as, let's see, I got myself off the track. Oh, were there other projects? Yeah, George tried, you know... Uh, I sort of, uh, I withdrew to some extent from the um, film industry. It didn't really withdraw from me. I withdrew from it because I always had a, uh, a vision, uh, and my vision was very innovative. And uh, I think I was, di- I know I was difficult for George early on. I mean, at first, he wanted me to do every film that he was going to, you know, but this whole thing where I pushed a bit maybe too hard to be the sort of, you know, on his shoulder creative voice saying, no, man, just, you know, keep... Let's just keep, you know, 
realizing this in every way he wanted it to be realized, which is pretty much what I would say, like, when he was editing Night Riders, I would actually take the liberty of going into the editing room and <laughs> saying, you know, sort of uh, being the voice that just supported him in his most far-reaching. You know, I mentioned his wife, Chris did that or whatever, other people, but I think I was very particular and had, you know, adamant voice about wanting him to realize our work in its purest and most, you know, in the form that he, I trusted George. See, when you work with someone that you trust, uh, George is always going to make you look better. He's always going to, uh, doesn't matter if you have different uh, creative ideas, but at the point, everyone does, uh, but the simpatico between George and I sort of presented, uh, uh, what it presented was that he was someone who I had a really good creative connection with and who uh, who would never do anything that I, it wouldn't matter to me what he did, he's always going to do something cool, that's my point creatively. And so, yeah, that's what I always wanted him to move forward with that. So in terms of other film scores as we move forward, yeah, he asked me to do um, that one, The Dark Half. Is that what it was with yeah. Timothy Hutton? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, these things happen, and, you know, I went to see that. But it's a business thing. They wanted, uh, I forget who did it, but they, they wanted, he was attached to this or that. And George wanted me to do it, but they, they you know, the... Uh, executive producers wanted somebody else and that was that so that's how that went so and and I myself again have to take some responsibility for not doing more because I was a bit intense and also because uh, I withdrew generally from Hollywood because I had I just wanted to uh, I mean it's a shame I didn't just keep going with George because I, I only began what I the creative roadmap that I would have kept uh, working to fulfill which was probably a fairly, was an innovative one. It wasn't probably, it was an innovative one. It was one that, you know, was bent on discovery. So what would have been discovered in the subsequent films, we'll never know. But I, um, you know, I made, I was a bit difficult for people to deal with because I was so intense around all that. And I didn't want to keep going. I didn't want to be a, a famous but compromised film scorer in the 80s. And that's the honest truth. I just didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be James Horner. I, I, I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to... Uh, there were very few composers that I admired. The only one I really had an interest in was uh, the guy from The Police. What was that guy's name? The drummer? Was that it? Who, who wrote some scores? Uh, hmm. I forget his name. But he'd written a, a score or two in the early 80s that I thought was really good. And I thought that his work was cool. Yeah, so my mind was bent on innovation. That didn't always gel with and I, I, I wasn't always that capable of navigating the uh, political landscape. You know, uh, you know. now that's not the case. I'm, I enjoy that. I enjoy it. But you have to be able to voice your point of view and then let chips fall where they may. Right? I used to just be very adamant about my point of view, and that was probably a mistake. So. But nonetheless, it served me in terms of the overall artistic mission, which I've been on and remain on this day. Uh, but yeah, so George asked me to do that, and that didn't work out. And then he asked me to do Bruiser, and I went and did that film. And, you know, we were very close friends, and he did say to me that he he wrote, he said to somebody, and um, I think it's on my website, uh, that if he had his choice, he would have had me do every single one of his films. So that was a very nice thing for him to have said. That was like 2000. I forget, seven or something, he said in an interview. Uh, uh, Daniel Schrager, I believe. 
So, uh, yeah, so there are missed opportunities there, but so goes life, and, and uh, I'm grateful for what we did. And the next one, and the last one I did was uh, Bruiser. Although, then he did want me to uh, score another one. He was landed the dead, I think, after there wasn't much energy put into me doing that, but I think he had some inclination to do that. But I Well, you touched on a, a, a key word for me, and, and Eric can attest to it. Bruiser is probably my my second favorite George film ever, uh, behind oh, Dawn. Cool. I am I am a, a huge proponent of Bruiser and have been since day one.
yeah, it addresses a lot of the same questions, but in a different context, you know, in the context of uh, the pressures of uh, making a living and, uh, you know, working for a company and the politics involved with all that. And, uh, you know, you, you understand, you've seen the film, but the violence, uh, the internal violence or frustration that ensues when you feel so unseen and unheard in that kind of, um, you know, corporate environment or an environment which doesn't really uh, value you and that along with the pressures that, that, the, the, that the main character, the protagonist was feeling in general, financial pressures and the like. So yeah, I think it, it, in a very cool way, in a very different way, uh, encapsulates his, his very, you know, his main themes throughout, you know, his, his career. And, uh, it's, it's, a, it's much more of a sociological uh, and a psychological study of an individual and the effects society has had on when it comes to creating those verses, you said you, you get parts of the script or parts of the film, and, and you go and create the music and come back to George. How much input does he have after you bring him a piece? And I never seem to hear of anything like, yeah, I brought this to George, and he was like, no, that's it. That's not it. Go back and scrap it. So what was it like when, when you would present him with something and, and how it went from there to get to the final piece? Yeah, I think that for the most part, everything was a-okay because we had that uh, creative connection. I think George sought people that that he felt would, uh, you know, enhance his work and, and uh, people which, you know, which would, they, they would personify the uh, the lines of his, uh, you know, vision you know, as an actor, as a musician, and, and he chose he tried to choose wisely in that respect. Of course, movies are a big deal, man. They're, they're big productions, and it's hard. Uh, like we've sort of, uh, you know, touched upon. There's always there are deals going on, and this, that, and the other. And it's hard for to always get the right person in the right place. But I think George worked hard his whole life to protect the core, um, you know, a core constituency, that, uh, a group of artists that work with him for that for that reason. So yeah, it was rare. The reason, but what George, I don't, I want to point out that George knew what he wanted, and I understand this because I'm similar. If, the, if something was not what he wanted, <laughs> he was not going to accept it, you know. He just happened to ask people and do his best, because that's part of a director's job, to bring it out in them, to give them the support they needed to, to render the work. But I think if he felt there was a real uh, uh, disparity between his vision and whoever he was working with, he would, have been, he would be very upset. Uh, about it, and I'm sure that it happened on in the course of his uh, uh, career, as it happens to many people. You know, partly it's through the dynamics of you know the economics and being groups and times of people you can have that connection with, and or the pressures of the, the productions themselves and the differences and all the like. And um, so, yes. But in terms of him and I, it was rare that he went no to something, uh, or maybe you want to change this. But he would make suggestions sometimes, and. Um, that would just build on what I had said. You know, I remember like Wanderer, he said, oh, I love it, but let's want to put a little some strings at the end because I need some kind of bigger sound as the movie's ending. It made perfect sense, so I wrote some string parts, you know, and a French horn part to go with the end of the song. But generally, everything was cool because uh, we were in sync, and, and, and he dug it, man. You know, but I always came to him with the with it as an offering, prepared to, because I may have, I may be in certain ways um, misrepresenting myself. I'm always completely open with a, a, a true creative uh, collaborator. And so I, I never would be so um, presumptuous as to assume that what I did was right. So I always came to him and 
said, this is what I did, you know, what do you think? What do you want, you know, had, so I was always prepared for it to go one way or the other. Luckily, most, most of the time, you know, 95% of the time, it was, yeah, this is cool, man, let's do it. You know, left turn here, left, right turn there. Or he had things in the film that had to be uh, addressed that weren't there before, so we'd have to attend to that, you know, respond to that creatively. But, yeah, generally that was the thing. And, um, and that was, uh, I think that was part of what went on. That's why, you know, my brother who produced, I think, uh, some of George's, you know, arguably his, his best films, uh, his greatest films, uh, they had that kind of relationship in the sense that Richard left George alone a lot. And they had their differences, as producers and directors do, but there was a lot of space for George to do his own thing. And Richard was very smart that way. He gave George as much leeway as he possibly could. And I think that served them both well. You know, uh, Richard didn't presume to tell George what to do, and I think that served George well for the period of time uh, that they worked together. And, uh, and um, so, anyways, I, I hope that answers your question. That's what it does. Nope, it did. Okay, cool. <laughs> I haven't talked this much, man. There's a lot of talking. This is like, I'm usually, I was in the, I'm in the studio mixing a new record of mine, and I, yeah, so there's a lot of talking straightforward, but I guess it's, 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 it's been gratifying to, I'm sort of like, you know, I've talked before about the work, but I always like to, uh, it's good yeah, at this juncture to, you know, sort of speak to it uh, more fully, and so uh, I appreciate that. So some of the answers are, are fairly uh, dense, perhaps, but uh, I'm just trying to get to a pretty, you know, honest and, well, uh, you know, broader you know, uh, adapts, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I, I, we kind of I, I moved past this one a little too quickly, but I, I did want to ask you, or I'd read that you'd had a collaboration with Brother Blue. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh yeah, I was the one that, that uh, suggested Brother Blue for Night Riders. Okay. Yeah, Brother. I met Brother Blue back in. Uh, Boston, it was amazing, uh, this is how events concur, life is quite, you know, uh, sometimes the, the, whoever's pulling the strings, the, the, the energy, however you think about that, um, and the magic of the universe um, and connections that people that find each other, it's pretty interesting, so yeah, Brother Blue and I met in, um, so don't want to write a breath you guys, but <laughs> a lot of talk, but uh, we met, uh, okay, it was 19... Oh, I mentioned Peter Gordon. He was a French horn player who also played with Jacob Pistorius, who was in the Boston Symphony, who really liked my Martin score and uh, asked to be introduced to me. And uh, I met him in Tanglewood uh, in, um, back, I guess it was 77 or something. And um, he commissioned me to write a piece for solo French horn. And so well, we met him off. And so I, I did that, and then... The night that premiered, the first time that was played was at Jordan Hall in, 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 at New England Conservatory of Music in Boston in 77. And there are a number of interesting people on that concert. There's Chris O'Reilly was on, con- on that concert. Christopher O'Reilly, he, um, he's been a longtime host of that NPR show where the kids come on and play music. Do either of you guys know that show? Have you heard that show? Mm-hmm. It, it runs every week on Sundays. Um, a long-standing show, classical show. Chris was on that. A lot. Of, I met some interesting people that night, and one of the people that was on Peter's show, because Peter himself was, you know, pretty out there for, you know, supposedly a classical player in the Boston Symphony. He uh, 
So he had, he played my piece, Chris uh, was on there, Gordon Gottlieb, uh, one of the great percussionists of our time was on, on, on that concert, came up from New York, and Brother Blue was on it. And so I guess Peter had met him, and um, that night after the concert, there was a you know, little party at Peter's house, uh, this back in 1977, somewhere on the 24th Friday, uh, something like that. So we went back to Peter's house, and, and Blue did some kind of one of his, you know, story things. He just did a little performance during the, during the deal, and, and I met him and, you know, liked him. He was a cool guy, and that, that was that. But the next day, which was a Saturday, for whatever reason, I went to this coffee house in, in Harvard Square, get a cup of coffee, and there was Blue and his wife, Ruth, I said, hey, man, you know, we met last night at, at uh, Peter's house and, you know, the concert. And he said, they said, yeah, I'll be going. So we started chatting. All of a sudden, the phone at the restaurant rings, and the uh, guy in the restaurant, I guess, who knew Blue, says, hey, man, Blue, there's someone on the phone for you. And it turned out it was Peter. Someone had put, put sand in his gas tank. Who knows why <laughs> or where or how that happened, but he couldn't get his car started. And he was supposed to meet Brother Blue to do a show for NPR, a, 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 an audio show. Peter was going to do the music. And so they were meeting there to go over to the NPR station in Harvard Square at the time, the PBS station. And then Blue looked at me and said, oh, man, we've got to be there in five minutes. He said, hey, man, you want to do the music for this? And I said, sure, man. I, had my, I think I had a harmonica with me, or uh, I think or a guitar and harmonica. I just usually had them with me. So... I said, yeah, we went over to the show, uh, to the studio, and just impromptu recorded this piece of blues, uh, of Brother Blues called The Greatest Blues Singer That Ever Lived. And it was about a 25-minute, you know, monologue, which if you're familiar with blues work, he's a storyteller. He, and he had slave chains there, he's jangling around. It was a whole story that he had made up, and it was beautiful. And, and uh, I, you know, went along for the ride and provided the music, you know, live for that. So that's how I met Blue. Subsequent to that, I invited him to perform with me, with my group, and we performed together a number of times, and I, uh, you know, became friends and quite liked him and his wife uh, a lot, and so we just became friends. So when I went out to, to uh, the Night Riders, uh, you know, I went out to meet with George at that, you know, their office over there in Pittsburgh, and we were up there on the thing, and he was saying, man, we still haven't cast Merlin. Not against Merlin. Like, they were coming up on the, you know, on the shoot, right? And so I said, oh, man, I know this guy. Man, he's perfect. You should hire him. And I told him who he was. And now this is the magic of it, is that turned out that Brother Blue had a show in Pittsburgh, a children's show on PBS some years before that. Were you guys aware of that? No. Yeah, Blue was no, on uh, a show in Pittsburgh. He lived in Pittsburgh and did this children's show. And I told George about this guy, and Blue lived in Boston at that point, because Blue had... I don't know why, maybe Blue lived in Pittsburgh for a bit of time, but he had a show there. Or maybe he did it in Boston and aired in Pittsburgh. I don't know. But, um, because Blue had gone to Harvard, and so, uh, I graduated from Harvard, so they, I said, when I described Blue to George, I remember standing in the office, I said, this is the guy, man, you gotta, you gotta hire this guy. And Blue, and George Wilson said, man, that sounds a lot like this guy who used to have this kid show here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> And it turned out it was. So I guess Blue did live in Pittsburgh for a time, and George knew who he was. And he said, that's a great idea. And so, like, literally, that afternoon, they arranged, and Richard arranged, and they, uh, you know, told Richard, and they flew Blue out to uh, do, a, you know, to audition for the part. And he got it. Now, it's a, you know, that's how it happened. 
Um, is there any uh, story to, or did you write any sketches for Creepshow, or uh, how did... Oh, Creepshow, no, because that was, by that, I mean, George had previously, when he told me he wanted to do Creepshow, that was like a good two, probably, when was, it was probably two years before the production, you know, really got going, and by the time it really got going, I think that George was, you know, just sort of needing a change, I was, you know, he just needed a change, to be quite frank, he was, I was being a little, you know, too intense, whatever, he just wanted some breathing room, and John um, was, a, you know, a terrific candidate for that, for that scoring, and he just decided that John was the right guy to, to do that. And so, no, I never, I never got into that film at all. Mm-hmm. So when he initially asked me, it must have been good two years before. And I was still riding on the other, on the other, uh, you know, the heels of uh, Night Riders, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, no, I never had much. I never had anything to do with that. Visited the set once. That's all. But John did a great job in that score, so that went well. Matt, did you have anything else that you want to ask? No, I think you've covered everything I wanted to know and more. I hope so, man. I'm out of breath. <laughs> I'm not going to have to exercise today. <laughs> really did some great work with Martin and, and especially Night Riders and, and, of course, Bruiser. That's going to keep coming up because my love for Bruiser knows no bounds. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I always feel that people kind of kind of forget that he did those scores. And well, they're and they're so varied. They're not uh, they're not similar really. They're, he doesn't uh, have a, a a consistent tone or, or style uh, across the films like 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 Carpenter did, or like a, a John Williams. You can always tell there's that and you know, and. Met. Magical flair, or a Danny Elfman, where everything sounds damn near identical. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean these are just completely different pieces based on you know the script or or whether or not he was able to you know see the film a little bit while composing. But very talented guy, and uh, very very thankful that he stopped by. We gotta we have to thank uh, Lawrence. To Vincent for for the hookup on the uh, contact with with Mr. Rubenstein, and, and I see this more in the horror community than I do elsewhere. Is there's an affinity for uh, cameramen, directors, and composers mm-hmm. that Definitely. that horror fans really enjoy hearing their stories. You know, and obviously, you know, the big names Mike Gornick and Dean Cundy are, are going to come up, but, you know, you have Carpenter, not just on the directing side, but on the music side, John Harrison, you know, Donald Rubenstein, you know, these guys really composed a lot of our favorite music pieces for these films. We need to and talk I, to, uh, we also need to talk to Nick Bethandria. He's not really out there. Um, he did a lot of work with, uh, with Wes Craven and it's just not really out there at all. Hardly. Yeah, uh, you know, these guys, you know, they, everyone knows what they've done, but they don't, like, know their names. Mm-hmm. You right. Know? And, that, and that's unfortunate because these guys are very talented filmmakers, musicians, you know, craftsmen, basically, because these guys did a lot of everything in, in certain cases. I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad, you know, we got a chance to talk to him and really get a lot of insight that I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I kind of, you know, almost had a preconceived notion of, you know, how he came up with stuff, and he totally blew me away with, mm-hmm. with you know, the behind the scenes on this, and that just, that was fantastic. All right. We want to once again thanks, say thanks to Mr. Rubenstein for agreeing to do the interview and for uh, for spending over an hour with us, and uh, those are the kind of interviews, I mean, I, you know, just the folks that really, you know, that don't have their story out there as much as uh, other folks do. Uh, yeah, I, I I found it funny. He kept apologizing for talking a lot, and we're kind of like, mm-hmm. no, you're talking. Like we're we're good. We're 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 listening intently. Let's let's, let's you know get it all out. <laughs> exactly, it's good stuff. And uh, as far as uh, WGON Radio goes, I mean, we are, uh, you know, we're gonna we're opting for quality over quantity, so we'll try to uh we'll we'll do uh, an episode as as needed you know as news comes up as we can acquire another interview and uh you know cobble up enough material to do another show but i think maybe once every couple months or so or yeah, yeah. Or even more i mean there's there's lots of romero topics that i think get glossed over mm-hmm. and, and i think you know like it, it's been kind of hinted at with, with some of my stories is I think there's a lot that George's career it has just been so glossed over outside of everything from, you know, you got pockets, you have night, you have Martin today, and then pretty much everything past that people just kind of touch on. Mm-hmm. And, and I always felt that fans, especially after George's passing, were talking to me like, oh, I'm finally going to see Creepshow. I'm finally going to see Night Riders. And I look and I go, you haven't seen them? No kidding. Yeah, I, 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 I have, very, very I have to question. I have to question your fanhood if you've never seen Night Riders. It's I, like I can, I can almost understand that because it's not, you know, it's not something you go and pick up at at Best Buy. But mm-hmm. it's, it's been relatively cheap for 10 years. You know, they yeah. did a re-release of it seven or eight years ago. And I think it, it's been on Netflix a couple times. I mean, it's, it's it's been out. If you're curious about his work, it's been there for you to see. It's probably hit yeah. YouTube a couple times. I mean, I mean, I can understand not seeing the films that are coming out in this box set. But mm-hmm. there, there was uh, a vast majority of, uh, of friends of mine that surprised me and said, well, I've I've just never seen Night Riders. I've never seen Monkey Shines. I've never seen Bruiser. And I'm like, go see them. They're so cheap. Like, to buy them on eBay or Amazon, like, go do it. You know, it's 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 astounding. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, it, it it shouldn't have taken the man dying for you to see this movie. True. You know, what, whatever movie that's it, that is. And that's, and that's just me saying, as a fan of the man's, of his work, is that you, you want to see all the stuff, the good, the bad, the indifferent, mm-hmm. the underseen, because you want to see his range from working with with a monkey in the, you know, his first studio picture to working with two evil eyes. And Well, it's such a finite amount of work, too. It's not a big ask. I mean, we're talking about it's definitely under 20 films, you know. Yeah, not too, not too difficult to watch everything. And yeah. now... Especially with this box set coming out, everything's really going to be accessible. Um, and, and, you know, they just put out Monkey Shines in the Dark Half from Screen Factory two years ago. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're readily available on Amazon or, you know, BestBuy.com, you know, the, you know, and they were quality releases. You know, George did new commentaries. They did new retrospective documentaries. Um, you know, I, I think they got some press kit junket stuff in there. I did you know, pick up the Monkey Shine, but I still have the Dark Half on the wish list. I'm still – that's still yeah. for a rainy day. But I do have an old DVD of it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed them more for the fact that George finally got to sit down and do commentaries for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they got, you know, some good new interviews. And I, I was glad to see some of that underseen work get some love. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, you know this box that's coming out after he passed, which obviously was not the intent. Uh, Land of the Dead just came out from Screen Factory. Mm-hmm. You know, and that just... It leaves a hole in my heart knowing I'm not going to get something new from the Bruiser. Someone should ever do yeah. that, <laughs> yeah. you know, or Night Riders, you know, for that matter. You know, there, you know, uh, that would be a great film to have a great retrospective on, because that that was done at a time that I think George really loved that film. I'm Eric Kent, and I'm Matt Blanc, and this has been WGON Radio. We want to once again thank Mr. Donald Rubenstein for granting us the interview. Please check out Mr. Rubenstein's website at donaldrubensteinart.com. Until next time. We're staying on the air! Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.